And all of God's people said, amen. Hey, I think Caleb was about to take off up here a few moments ago. And I'm going to be honest, I was kind of ready to grab his hand and go with him. Uh, what a great worship opportunity we've had this morning. I pray that God has blessed you and that you have been before the throne even before we get to the scripture. I'm so grateful for our leadership, our music leadership, worship leadership here. Hey, take your copy of God's word, if you will, and turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14, Revelation chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 14 and look through verse 22. We're going to study those verses today. In 2009, there was a 13-year-old Kansan that stood on the stage seeking a victory. All she had to do was spell one more word correctly, and she would win the title of the best speller at the National Spelling Bee. Some of you have been there before, right? Connor, you were there, I think, one day doing that. But this young lady stood there, and she got her word. The word that, that day was Laodicean. Laodicean. She began to trace the letters in the air with her hand as she spelled it correctly. Well, in the next few days, all the different media Markets, they began to report about this winner of the National Spelling Bee. And they talked about this word, Laodicean. And the way they described it was indifference, especially when it comes to religion or politics. That's basically what you'd find in most of the articles. Rarely did it ever mention anything about its biblical nature or anything about its biblical significance. It might speak to the city that was there in Asia Minor, but most of the time, it didn't talk about the church itself. Well, I would say to you that most Americans probably today, and probably a lot of Christians, they couldn't correctly spell Laodicean, and they probably couldn't even tell you exactly how you see that significance in Scripture. Probably it probably has gotten lost in a lot of different ways. But I would tell you today that the word Laodicean and the church that we're going to look at has probably as much application to us as any other church that we would find in Revelation 2 and 3. So I want to show it to you this morning, and I want to talk to you about turning apathy into affection. Apathy into affection. Verse 14 Jesus is speaking. He says unto the angel, the pastor, the messenger, however you want to interpret that, the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Notice how Jesus identifies himself. He says, I am the amen. Amen. You know what that word means? Uh, probably not, because I don't hear you say it too often, especially when I'm preaching. But the word amen is actually, in the Greek, it is a transliteration of the Hebrew amen. Amen would mean it was real, it was true. In the Hebrew, when you would see the word amen, it would talk about how that which was spoken, it demonstrated reality and truth. And the course the New Testament believers borrowed the word and brought it over and amen it met meant that it was true 
So in other words, when something was said that was true, when something was reliable, the people would respond by saying, amen, you still sound weak. But he says, the faithful and true witness. So Jesus says, I'm the amen, I'm reality, I'm truth. And then he even emphasizes it by saying that I am the faithful and true witness, the beginning, or I would even say here, the origin or the ruler of all creation. He says, this is who is speaking to you. And then he begins in verse 15, in the same way that we've seen him speak to all of the other churches of Asia Minor. We've come now to the final church in our journey. And in each case, he says to the church, I know, I know for a fact your works. In other words, Jesus says, I know all about you. I know everything. And he's already given us a survey of the churches, and he gave us an evaluation of each one. And here at Laodicea, he says, I know your works. But you know what's missing here? A commendation, an encouragement. This is the only church of the seven where Jesus will not say one positive thing about them. There's nothing that Jesus will find that will say, hey, I want to commend you for this. I want to encourage you for this. Nothing. This is the only church that goes without commendation. But look at what he does say. He says, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What a graphic and vivid image Jesus uses here to speak about his disfavor and his distaste of the church at Laodicea. He says, I look at you and you're really not hot, you're really not cold, you're kind of lukewarm, and really you make me nauseated. Jesus said that. What strong graphic language that Jesus would use. I think it speaks to their attitude. The attitude of the church toward Christ was one of apathy. The attitude was apathetic, ho-hum, indifferent. As the church looked at Jesus, just kind of was indifferent toward him. I want to dig into this just a little more, especially as we look at the background of Laodicea and try to maybe explain what Jesus is saying further. So Laodicea, rich city, all kinds of wealth. It was a banking center of Asia Minor and really of the whole area. People would go and, I mean, that's where you would find finances and you would do all kinds of things with a the bank. They would go to Laodicea. It was well known in the area. It had all type of economic power. But it had a problem. It had a big problem. You could not find natural fresh water in Laodicea. Now, most of the time when you built a city, you wanted to make sure that you built it close to where you would have an adequate water supply. But Laodicea, it had found its way on these trade routes and it, and it was formed, but it had no true source of water, which was so strange because you would find good water in other places. Let's say you travel 10 miles to a city called Colossae. Our New Testament book, Colossians, was written to a church there in that area. 
Colossae, you would find natural spring water, very cold, very refreshing coming from the mountains. It would be something that would be a joy to taste and to drink. Let's say you go to Hierapolis, which was six miles away from Laodicea. And at Hierapolis, you would actually find the hot springs. You would find an area where people would go to get hot water so that they could find healing, so that they could find relaxation. It would be hot water with great minerals that would bring health to people. So here you would have Colossae on one side, Hierapolis on the other side, the cold refreshment, or the warm spring water. So back in the summer, my family and I got to go out west for a little while. I'm so grateful we did. I just told Leslie the other day, I'm so thankful we were able to get away for just a few days, especially with all the things going on around us, and that we got to go when we did. But we went to a, a, a town called Pagosa Springs. Now, as its name indicates, there are like springs there. There are hot springs. And I figured out that they like had these little areas where you could go and you could like soak in like hot water. Now, listen, this was so strange to me. People in North Mississippi didn't go sit in hot water in order to relax. But North Louisiana's kind of rubbed off on me a little bit, and I've got more culture now. So anyway, I went out, and we got to Pagosa, and we were talking about different things to do. And we looked at the little brochures, and the family and I decided, hey, let's just go down to those springs. Let's go down, let's sit in the water, and let's see what happens. So we went down. Family and I did, and of course we had to go in and get all like changed up into our swim trunks and that kind of stuff, which was kind of weird again. North Mississippi boy, redneck, kind of doing this kind of stuff. It's a little different. But we went ahead and changed and got ready, and we went out, and they had these different like uh, tubs or so, pools. And this one would be kind of warm. This one would be kind of like uh, medium warm, and then this one would be like hot, and you could get in any of them. Well, my family and I, we got in one. I see some of you thinking, yeah, that's, that's how we got all this stuff back to North Louisiana. You brought all that stuff back with you, didn't you? No, no, just my family and I, we got in one. I wanted in the hottest one. And I got in that, and, and of course, I had to just kind of adjust, look around, and all that kind of stuff just meant make sure everybody was okay. You know, kids, their, their heads above water and that kind of stuff, and everybody was good. But at that point, I just kind of relaxed. It was kind of nice. Now, I did have to get over the smell. I don't know if you've ever recognized this, but a sulfur smell that comes from the natural minerals of that. I mean, I did have to get over that, but after a while, you can't smell that stuff anymore. You know, it's just like it's gone. It's, you're used to it. Now, I just enjoyed it. Now, I will tell you that my clothes, Leslie has washed our clothes about seven times. So if you see me around a pool, which I won't be in the pool because I don't swim, but if sometimes I'll get around a pool and you smell that sulfur on me, it's because we're still working to get it out, okay? We're still trying to do that. But it was nice. It was kind of warm. It was refreshing. So here Jesus is like, if you're cold, and you got cold water like Colossae, then that's refreshing because it's cold. You got the hot water of Hierapolis, which would be like healing water, then that's nice. But Laodicea didn't have either one. I mean, Laodicea had built this series of aqueducts to try to bring water into the city. So they went up and they found some hot springs and they built an aqueduct to 
take the water and bring it all the way down. And when it got to Laodicea, it was at best lukewarm. And it was cloudy. It was tepid to the taste. It was nasty looking. As a matter of fact, when I was growing up, this is kind of the water we had in the North Lee County Water Association. I don't know if you've ever been there, but that's kind of the water I'm thinking about. I never wanted to drink it. And the water would come down, and it would be lukewarm, be filled with those minerals, but they wouldn't have a healing agent about them. They would have a distasteful character about them. Someone has said this. For all its wealth, Laodicea could produce neither the healing power of hot water like its neighbor, Hierapolis, nor the refreshing power of cold water to be found at Colossae, but merely lukewarm water, useful only as an emetic, which means it's only something that will cause you to get sick. That's all the water they had. So listen to this. Jesus comes to them and he says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're just kind of lukewarm. That's all it is. Hey, you know something room temperature, lukewarm, it doesn't necessarily taste what you want it to taste. Take coffee, for example. Any of you drink coffee? I like coffee. It's kind of, I guess, my second friend. Leslie's my best friend, and then coffee's the second. Kids come afterwards, somewhere down the line. I love coffee. I love hot coffee. I like for it to be hot. I do every now and then drink iced coffee. We even have a market for that. Some of you people drink iced coffee. So hot coffee, iced coffee, it's refreshing, both of those. But what if you've got a cup of coffee and you poured it and you leave it for about three hours and you come back to it? Yeah. It's not exactly what you want it to be. It has something to be desired. That's the type of water I'm explaining to you today. And that's the type of personality or character that this church had. So Jesus came and Jesus said, you're lukewarm. When I taste of you, you make me sick. This is an apathetic church. An indifferent church. What is the opposite of affection and love? Not really hate. Hate, at least you're feeling something. The opposite of love is just really not caring. You have no feeling. There's no affection. You are apathetic. And if anything over the last few months, I believe we've been exposed as a church. We've been demonstrated to be more apathetic than affectionate toward Christ. And I'm talking about the church in general. I'm talking about the church that you would find here in the United States, the Western church. You would find a church that is very apathetic, that is just indifferent in so many areas. Think about it, before pandemic. Church? I mean, really, even morning worship, Sunday morning, it kind of was just placed in there with everything else. As long as this didn't happen, as long as this wasn't going on, as long as we didn't go over here, then we'd probably go to church. Now, some of you say, well, now, church is not about your relationship with Jesus. You know, you can still have a relationship with Jesus. You're exactly right. Listen, your relationship with Jesus, that is what saves you, not your church going. 
Not your works. It is about your love for Christ. But I'm going to tell you this. If you love the Lord Jesus, you ought to love his church. Because the Bible says that Jesus Christ died for his church. He died for you. He died for me. Why? Because he loved us so much. And if he loved the church that much, we ought to love the church. And we ought to be committed to the church. I believe that during this pandemic, what we have seen is a lot of apathetic believers. Now, hear me, and I think most of you know my heart. I believe that there are some people that need to be careful about being out. Some don't need to be coming to the church building at this time. That's the reason we're providing live stream. I really do believe that. And we're going to continue to do that. So hear me clearly say that I believe that there are some people that shouldn't be. I believe that we need to be taking precautions. I think we need not to be foolish in who we are. I believe all that. But I also believe that this moment has become an excuse for some to check out from the community of Christ and check out in their relationship to Jesus. I read some article some months ago that said uh, that Tom Rayner said that we probably are looking at at least a 25% decline in the church life through this pandemic. Not talking about right now. We know that. We know people aren't coming. But he's talking about in a few years that the church will never come back to where it was. That there will never be the attendance that we have had in the past. And I say to you that if that is the case, it is not because of the pandemic. It is because of an infection of apathy that had hit our people way before the pandemic ever came about. The pandemic just exposed us. It just showed that we had so many other requirements, that we were apathetic, that yes, we would go if there's nothing else, you know, we're, you know. John Stott wrote, perhaps none of, her, none of the seven letters is more appropriate to today's church than this one. It describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath of religiosity, he says. He wrote that 40 years ago. I would submit we're more apathetic today than we ever have been. Indifferent. Think of how this would go over, those of you who are married. Think of how a relationship of apathy would go over with your spouse. Let's say your spouse asks you, hey, you love me, right? And you respond with a response of apathy or indifference. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. You know, I know that there was, you know, I just, I'm going through a whole hum time of life right now. Ask me that question again in a few weeks. Yeah, how would that go over? It wouldn't go over. Or you might be over. You're, you and the relationship might be over. But get this. This is the way we live with Jesus. Oh, nobody really says it, but in our hearts, we're kind of like, all right, Jesus, we're just going through a time right now. We just need, you know, if we can take off from this a little bit. And, you know, Jesus, you know, it's just, they were apathetic. You know why they were apathetic? Because they felt themselves adequate in who they were. What do you mean by that? Well, let me show you. 
Look in verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. The reason they were apathetic toward their relationship with Jesus was because they felt they were adequate in and of themselves. They didn't need Jesus. They had everything that they needed. I told you they were wealthy. They were the banking center. They also had come up with this way of processing like black wool. And it made them famous in the area that people would want this smooth uh, fabric that would be produced in Laodicea. So not only had they had economic prowess, but they also had this agricultural production that was bringing them fame. And add this, they were known for medicine. They were known for this Phrygian powder that could be used with water or oil in order to create some type of eye salve that could help people, an ointment. So they were known for medicine. So They've got the economic power. They've got the agricultural processes. They even have this medicinal strength. They thought they had it all. They were self-sufficient. Do you know that when an earthquake struck them some years before this letter was written, Rome came in and Rome said, we want to help you pay for your rebuilding. We've done that for the other cities around. We want to do it for you. And the Laodiceans said, oh, no, 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 we got this. We got money. We got all kinds of things. We got resources. We'll build back on our own. Now, that's admirable in some way. But if you allow self-sufficiency to run its course, what you will find is pride and arrogance. It happens in our lives when we think we're self-sufficient on our own when we think we can achieve things through our own resources. We don't see our need for God because everything seems to be adequate. We're adequate. We don't need Jesus for this. My home pastor used to say, oftentimes we miss Jesus and we don't see our relationship, our need for a relationship with him when our bank account's up and our blood pressure's down. When everything seems to be going well, It's kind of like we're on our own, and we can make it, and we don't need Jesus. The church at Laodicea, they had reached that point. They were apathetic toward Jesus because they felt adequate in and of themselves. Still happens to us. Still happens to us today. When everything seems to be going well. Hey, let let me apply it to the church life, corporate life a moment, and then come back. To our personal lives. We are blessed at Temple Baptist Church. We're blessed. Hey, we're blessed with a sanctuary like this. Uh, a campus like this. I was telling somebody the other day, through the pandemic, we have a little extra room so that people can spread out. Now, I know we got a lot of people out today, but hey, you can still spread out. I know you could move a little closer to me sometimes. You can spread out. It's great. I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the resources he's given us. I'm grateful for the campus that we have here. But you and I need to be reminded every day that this was not built, this was not here because of us. 
Because if it's just about the resources we have and we're the ones who've done that, that is nothing. But when we recognize that everything we have as a church, the building, the campus, the resources, the programs, all of that is a direct blessing of God that God gave it all to us, then we begin to say, oh yeah, God, this is yours, not ours. And God, you are the one that we should be thanking because you are the one that's done this. I say that about your homes. This is a week in which you stop to give thanks. And most of us in this place, we are radically blessed. Most of us are. And we'll give thanks. Hopefully we'll give thanks for spiritual things. Just as we did during the dedication of Otis a few moments ago, this morning the 9 a.m. service, I baptized a couple of people Again, we're grateful for salvation. We give the Lord thanks for all those spiritual things. But you know what? Everything you have is because of the grace of Jesus Christ. When you eat a piece of bread this week, it's because of God's blessing, not just because you're so smart and good and work so hard. When you have a roof over your head, when you put your clothes on tomorrow, when you have a job, it is because of the grace of Jesus. It's because he gave you the mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual strength to accomplish what you've accomplished. Don't feel like you've built your kingdom. Don't feel like all of this is because of how great you are. It is because of the greatness of Christ. This is what he says here. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Did you get that? They had deceived themselves. And again, that's the reason they're apathetic, because they thought they were adequate. They didn't need Jesus. They didn't need him anymore. They didn't need all those things. They had all of it taken care of. He says, but you're deceived. Look in verse 18. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eyesalve, that you may see. An invitation, Jesus says, Hey, I'm telling you, what you really need to do is you need to come and buy gold. What you really need to do is come buy some new garments. What you need to do is come and buy some ISAF. What? What? Jesus said, you need some gold. Laodicea was the wealthiest city around. They had gold everywhere, but not the spiritual gold of Christ. He says, you need new garments. You need some white garments. He said, take off that black wool you've been wearing around. You need some white garments. White always symbolizes purity and righteousness. He says, I can give you spiritual righteousness. I can give you white garments. You can take off that black wool that you're wearing. He said, oh, and so many of you, you're so proud of the medicine you have and the eye salve that you have applied to other people to give them physical sight. He said, I've got some spiritual eye salve that I need to give to you because you are blind right now and you need to see. Do you see what Jesus does here? He takes all of their strengths and he says, let me show you how I can truly give you what you need. It's awesome the way Jesus does this. And he says, you come and buy Buy, you're going to buy gold? 
when you don't really have anything that could bark. It reminds me of Isaiah 55, 1 and 2. It says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. In Isaiah, it was the invitation, come and buy without gold, without any kind of money. You can come and buy. Do you know any store you can go into and you can buy without money? No. Not really. You might have a credit card. No. You got to have a credit card, check, money, something. Jesus said, you can come and you can buy. He's the only one that has a store that's open where you can go and buy without money. You know why? Because Jesus already paid for all of it for you. He took care of your tab. He paid for your sins upon the cross. And listen, it opened up resources of heaven like you and I would never know. So he says, I counsel you to come. To come. Verse 19 as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. So the church's attitude toward Christ was one of apathy. Christ's attitude toward the church was one of affection. Did you catch this? He said, I've loved you. I've loved you. Now, that's strange to me especially when I put it in context of this church. Because what did Jesus say to them to begin with? You make me sick. You nauseate me. Really, Jesus? I nauseate you, but you love me? I mean, today, if someone were to walk up to you and say, hey, I just want you to know, I find you absolutely revolting and you make me sick. How many of you would say, hmm, that is a term of endearment. They must love me greatly. You wouldn't think that. So here's Jesus. He says, you make me sick. And then he comes and he says, I love you. Because Christ still loved them and he showed it. How did he show it to them? He says, I loved you in that I rebuke and chasten you. In other words, that I speak the truth to you. See, in relationships, in relationships, the people that truly love you will speak the truth to you. Now, I'm not saying that you and I are called to go and give the truth. Let me say this. We need to make sure that when we're given the truth, we give it in the context of relationships. That's how it's most accepted. Jesus had a relationship with the church, and that is the reason he could speak truth to them. And they can know that he loved them. He says, the reason I'm telling you this is because I love you and I always have loved you. That's the reason there's discipline the same word is used there to speak of the discipline of children. Because you love children, there are times you'll say no. There are times you'll try to discipline them because you love them. This is incredible to me. They were unfaithful to Jesus. They were apathetic toward him. And he still loved them. Do you get this? This is the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. He says, I still love you. 
I still love you. And guess what? He longed for them and he shouted it. He said, be zealous. The language here is decisively repent. You make up your mind to repent. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. He says, I'm knocking on the door. I'm shouting to you. If you'll just let me in. Now, through the years, I've heard so many preachers, pastors, those that I respect greatly, use this in an evangelistic type of way to unbelievers, that Jesus stands at the door and knocks, and if you allow him to come in, he will have a relationship. And listen, I think the analogy is beautiful, and I think it can be used, but this is not the primary context in which it was used here. It was not to unbelievers. He was actually coming to the church, and it was a picture of him standing at the doors of the church, and he was knocking and saying, let me back in. Let me back into your church. Let me back into your to your fellowship and intimacy. You're kind of ho-hum. You've gone off and you try to do things on your own. But I say to you that I want to come back in and I want to have fellowship with you. I want to eat with you. See, this pandemic has, uh, well, it's troubled me in so many different ways, but especially in the way we fellowship with one another. I love to be able to like just fellowship. Even this Thanksgiving week, you know, some of you are doing some different things. I love like going and being around a table with my family. I love being able to have friends. I, I have missed Wednesday night meals. I have missed the ice cream of Wednesday night meals. I've missed being able to sit because there's some type of intimacy of sitting around a table and talking and visiting and eating together. I believe it is no accident that the Lord chose one of the two ordinances to be the Lord's Supper so that it would be a sense of communion, a sense of coming together in fellowship. I love that. And that is the image Jesus uses here. Jesus said, I want to come in. I want to have fellowship with you. I want to sit down at the table. Hey, come, come let me in. And you pull up a chair right here at the table and let's visit together and let's have communion together. He said, I'm, I'm knocking. Won't you let me in? There's a sense of intimacy. It's just like some of you, first date, you go out with somebody. Well, you usually go out to eat, right? I remember Leslie. I asked her out. Now, um, let's see. It was 1997, so you do the math. December 97. Actually, that's when I asked her. Sorry, I'm going to get in big trouble. hope she doesn't watch this later. That's when I asked her to marry me. I asked her out to eat. Like earlier, like spring of 96. We went to McAllister's. We went there for the first nine months we dated because the girl that went with us never wanted to go anywhere else. But we would go out to eat. And it would be kind of like developing the relationship, just dating. Jesus said, hey, I'd kind of like to go on a date with you again. Remember when we dated some time ago when I came into your life and you, I was special to you? But right now, you've not made any time. You've not invited me into fellowship and intimacy. But I want it. Even though they had been apathetic, he was still affectionate. He longed for it. My friends... This is where our apathy can turn to affection. If we recognize in our lives that we've just 
been indifferent toward him. Indifferent toward his things. If we just come and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've taken this relationship for granted. As a matter of fact, there are times I've thought I could do this on my own. This school, this work, this family thing, even church life, even my spiritual life, I thought I could do it on my own. If we could come and say, Lord, we recognize we've done that, but Lord, we're sorry. We want to invite you back in. Lord, we're going to fling open the door so you can walk right by. And Lord, when you come to the table, we're going to pull up right beside you because we want to enjoy fellowship and intimacy with you. That would turn our apathy toward affection. He loves you. He loves you so much that he died on the cross for you. He gave his life for you. And he loves you even in the moments when you were unfaithful. And today, he calls you to rejoin that intimate relationship. Stop being lukewarm. Be hot. Be cold. Be refreshing. Live for him with passion. In a moment, I'll give an invitation. And you can give thanks right where you are. You certainly can, but the altar's open if you want to come and give thanks here as well. But this morning, maybe you've allowed that relationship to slip. Drift away. It doesn't happen overnight. Usually it happens over some time. But today you want to enjoy the relationship, the intimacy that you once did with Jesus Christ. Maybe today you need to turn your apathy into affection. Would you come as I'm here? I'll pray with you. We'll seek the Lord together. There's some of you that may not be saved. You've never sat down at the table with Jesus to begin with. You've never opened the door. Today, my friends, is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ died for you because you had sinned. I had sinned. All of us had. And if you commit your life to him, you give yourself fully to him, I promise you, not because of what I say, but because of what the scripture says, you will be saved through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of Jesus himself. I'm going to invite you through this moment of invitation to come and to commit your life and to draw closer to him. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you now. I thank you for your word. I thank you. For, Lord, loving us even when, we, even when we are unlovable in so many ways. And, God, today I pray that you would rock some of us from our apathy. That you would confront our indifferent ways. And, God, that today we would blow hot in passion. We would blow cold with the refreshing spirit of God in our lives. Lord, that we would not take the day for granted. We would not live in such a lukewarm fashion. But, Lord, we would seek you. Lord, turn our apathy to affection. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?